0: mm mm-hmm. about what's going on inside Washington, D.C., what regulators and lawmakers are working on and thinking about, and what you and your credit union should be evaluating in terms of risk areas and areas of opportunity. I'm your host, Ann Petros, and Vice President of Regulatory Affairs here at NAFQ, and today I am joined by Dr. Mark Calabria. Uh, he is former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency and now a senior advisor at Cato Institute and a managing director at CETA Experts. Mark is an economist and housing finance expert, and I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast today to you know, talk about his upcoming book, Shelter from the Storm, available on March 14th, and his thoughts on the state of the mortgage financing and, and housing markets today. So thank you, Mark, for being here. And
1: it's just such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, let's let's start talking about your your book and some of the wonderful reflections um, in that book. You know, and let's go back to the start. Can you describe what happened in mortgage markets in 2020? Um, you know, that, that fateful day in March when we all started realizing that things were were uh, headed downhill. Um, and how is this different than the 2008 financial crisis? You know, for example, in the in the book you talk about. The role of credit risk versus interest rate risk
1: i mean that's a great intro to it and as a reminder you know i was staff on the senate banking committee in 2008 and and, in the years leading up to 2008 Mm -hmm. and a theme of the book really is you know what were the lessons we took away from 2008 and how things were done well or not well uh, and how do we how do we make sure we do it better this time And I think we did. I think compared to, you know, Hamp Harp and many of the things that were rolled in 2008, that things went much more smoothly. But to to roll back to those crazy days in in the beginning of 2020, um, you know, fortunately, I should say, 2019 was an incredibly strong year for the housing market. You know, we'd seen a fair amount of appreciation. There had been very strong home ownership growth. Uh, And, you know, I had come into the job at FHFA in April of 2019, uh, and we immediately started strengthening underwriting standards for Fannie and Freddie loans so that when we went into the pandemic, you had fairly strong underwriting. You know, borrowers were in a very solid spot. Uh, and of course, even late 2019, but particularly January 2020, we all started hearing, you know, this talk of a, of a new virus. And, and none of us quite knew uh, at that time how serious it was going to be, um, you know, whether there would be lockdowns and Again, even as I think in January, third week, you know, China locks down Wuhan, and even at that point, I think we'd had one U.S. case. So the question of you know, how much was this going to spread here was still on our minds. Yeah, it still
0: didn't feel real. It,
1: it didn't, and that, and that's a fair thing to to say. So, for instance, I start out the book, rec- or, you know, recalling um, speaking at a home builder convention on the mm-hmm. day Wuhan went locked down, and, and thinking, well, how's this going to play out? Um, you know, and we had a great housing market. We we're trying to fix the mortgage finance system. Again, oddly enough, my speech that day was things are really strong, but we need to strengthen the infrastructure for the next crisis. Of course, did not know, <laughs> did not know the next crisis was right around the corner. Yeah. Uh, and then again, um, as we started to see rumors and, and more data come out about the virus, you know, combined with some early lockdowns, you know, recall we saw the strongest labor market contraction in american history you know between that march april may uh, 22 million jobs um, which again to put it in context uh in the 20 in the 2008s over the course of that over 2008 to 2010 we lost about 9 million jobs so and that was over about a two-year time whereas we had a two to three month time uh, and so this was just an astounding amount of pullback in the economy, you know, due to the lockdowns, do the mm-hmm. uncertainty. Uh, we saw right away that this was primarily going to be renters. So one of the things we noticed, you know, in March 2020 was only about 40% of the job losses were uh, households with mortgages. So we immediately said, you know, we need to create a bridge. Uh, we have learned, unfortunately, over time that for those losing their jobs, it often takes two to three, even four months to get unemployment insurance. Right. So I hope nobody ever loses their job. And it's not unfortunately, a quick it, it is not a good process. And, you know, mm. one of the things I recall in the book, and you may remember this, was. Uh, You know, the state of New Jersey put out a call for COBOL programmers Mm -hmm. to get their their UI system working, which was being run in a mainframe basement somewhere. (laughs) So you're just like, so again, you know, I I hope that Congress revisits this and the states revisit this. Because what we were primarily looking at this from the household side was how do we create a two, three, four, six-month bridge for those families who were gonna wait on the UI. And of yeah. course, unemployment insurance usually covers about half of workers. So there'd be some that weren't covered. And again, it was all meant to be a bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, remember everybody talked about flattening the curve back then. Yeah. Uh, and so our instincts at the time were, you know, we need to get to the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really what was set up in terms of the forbearance programs and we also just so we needed to do it quickly you may remember in 2008 uh, there was a very convoluted paper chase of servicers and borrowers having to fill paperwork and the paperwork would get lost and there were even people you know whether it was the lender or the borrower some fraudulent paperwork being filed so needless to say it was a mess and we looked at this and I said right away we cannot repeat that yeah. um, and I, and I and I try to be frank in the book about you know, the, the gambles we took, if you will. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the biggest gambles was saying, we're going to take borrowers at the word on the front end. Right. Uh, and we knew that that would potentially be abused, but we felt that we're going to get you in. You know, you, the servicer will call you and you'll say whether you've been um, adversely impacted. And we hope that by asking that question, people would tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'd have. then our initial plan was to have the servicer follow up about three months later. And you know, are you back on your feet? Have you started working again? Are you getting unemployment insurance? But it really was decided we just could not do this paper chase last time because again, we 'd be too deep into a pandemic that was that was quickly moving, and nobody knew how it was going to evolve um, so i I do think one lesson that'll come out of this is there 's going to be much more pressure in the future recessions and future downturns mm-hmm. just to get people in and verify it later yeah uh, now. What we saw in the Fannie and Freddie book did not suggest there was a lot of abuse. That people who We didn't get a lot of evidence that people taking it didn't need it.
0: It didn't seem like that was the case in the no. the broader market, you know, generally. Maybe a little
1: bit of FHA, but but generally, no. Yeah, I mean, generally, not for conventional t- mortgages. General yeah. conventional mortgages, largely the people mm-hmm. who took it seemed to need it, and that's what the evidence um, suggested. But we knew we had to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. The other aspect that was really important to me that I took away from the 2008 Was the way that HAMP and HARP and many of the assistance programs in 2008 were set up is, you know, they were, you know, means tested, which made sense, Mm -hmm. but they were set up in a way, and I still to this day don't know where the 31% came out of the air, but most of these programs are set up so that if you lost your job or had a reduction in earnings and you got into HAMP and HARP, every additional dollar you made, you lost 31 cents in mortgage assistance. And then you add that on other things, and again, I'm an economist by training, and I and I believe these incentives matter. But you had really strong penalties in the assistance programs if you went back to work. And of course, as we all remember, the Great Recession was the weakest job recovery, you know, post World War yeah, II. Yeah,
0: it took a while.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know I'm not attributing all of this to the to the mortgage assistance programs, but I do think the structure of the mortgage assistance programs in 2008 deterred a lot of people from going back to work or at least, you know, working on the books. So one thing we didn't looked at this, partly because we knew as quickly as the labor market was moving in the spring of 2020 that, you know, any income data would be stale, mm-hmm. you know, so the data would be stale and we didn't want to penalize people for going back to work. So we looked at this and said, again, with that kind of flatten the curve mentality, um, Let's not make this based on, you know, you got to testify you've had a reduction in earnings to get in, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to make this contingent you staying in on whether you go back to work or not. You know, we'll let you take it and there'll be no reduction in penalties if you go back to work because we don't want to penalize you for going back to work, Right. you know, and, and I do think that one of the reasons we've had such a very strong job recovery starting like May, June of 2020, which really continued... Um, For most of 2020 and 2021, was because we didn't penalize people in the mortgage programs; they could, they could stay in, and that was a really important difference Mm -hmm. this time around. So I do think they ended up being quite successful. I was surprised that, you know, consistently we had about a fourth uh, of borrowers who signed up for forbearance and paid throughout. Um, We also had a very large number. Where people would stay for three or four months of forbearance, and they would mail a check for three or four months in right so right. it was surprisingly large number of people who took it as a kind of backstop option yeah.
0: and you talk about that incentive for going back to work? I mean, yes. it's one thing to have a penalty on, let's say, a subprime mortgage yeah. for you know late payments exactly. right, but this is this is a very different situation, and people were still doing their best to to make payments as they could, but just wanted that safety net.
1: And that's exactly what it was. And again, you know, unlike 2008, where there was a lot of anger at Wall Street and banks in general, and there was what I would there's call some... There's still some, some anger at Wall some, Street. And there's some, you know, again, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's... There probably always will be some, right. and, and there will always be some out there striking up that anger. Um, but, you know, the point being that nobody in 2020 thought that they were having problems with their mortgages because of something the lender did. Yeah. So, so, so you didn't have this adversarial relationship, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, a lot of lenders um, across the board, credit unions, depositories. I mean, people really reacted quite quickly.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: And uh, you know, and I, you know, one indicator to me that we got it largely right was that the people who weren't covered in Fannie and Freddie loans mostly mirrored what we did you know mm-hmm. when you had a fair amount of, we coordinated with FHA but there's a still a large segment whether it's portfolio lenders or private label and pretty much i would say we got 95% of the market with a very similar framework mm-hmm. and i and i and, and again not everybody had to adopt that so i see that as some indicator of success now that's on the household side which we can which we can come back to but 2020 March in particular, you know, we had another financial crisis to put it frank, uh, and I think it went so quickly that perhaps we've already forgotten right. about it. And obviously, there was a lot else going on in that time, um, and some of this was, you know, as COVID started to develop. I mean, you had starting about December 2019 into into January February a real move toward safer assets. And, uh, you know, when people were selling off corporate bonds and buying treasuries, and for a while they were buying mortgage-backed securities mm-hmm. as, as well. And so you saw that flight to safety. In March, it really became less a flight to safety and more a big dash for cash, if, if, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, some of it was a concern that, well, all these job losses, mortgages might not pay. And of course... Uh, Mortgage servicing rights, you know, kind of decline in value when you have to service, you know, distressed mortgages, Um, and we also started to see the Fed in March really start to intervene in a very heavy way. There were targeted interventions, some of which we partnered with the Fed on. There were obviously broader interventions of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, I think, to be quite frank about it, came in very heavy in the mortgage market. In my opinion. perhaps too hard too soon. And the reason for this is Mm. you really saw such a dramatic change in interest rates. And you've seen this evolution. And of course, let's all remind ourselves that mortgage-backed securities act like any other bond, um, except for, of course, the prepayment. But, uh, you know, so when you see these declines in rates, you can see very dramatic changes in mortgage-backed security values. And more importantly, you see even more volatility in mortgage servicing rights, because those are almost completely driven by kind of interest rate risk. And so whereas the 2008 crisis was predominantly... You know, credit crisis. It was a crisis of borrowers not paying, not paying their mortgages, and that holds true even in the, in the commercial mortgage space and other sectors. The initial shock here, and again, it, it's not one or the other; it's both. Where I would say 2008 was, you know, seventy percent credit risk, thirty percent interest rate risk, because again, we saw some changes there. This was really a flip of that, where. The interest rate changes engineered by the Fed in in March 2020 really ended up with a lot of disruptions throughout the mortgage market. But you certainly had concerns about whether borrowers were going to be able to pay, Mm -hmm. and that entered the credit risk. You also had the growth of – market participants who were much more vulnerable to interest rate changes. And the biggest really development here, in my mind, was mortgage REITs. And, and of course, mm-hmm. uh, REITs are traditionally set up by the tax code. It's a passive investment vehicle. You know, you're supposed to go out and buy an apartment building and, you know, you get your dividends. And and, and, and there has developed a small number of mortgage REITs that generally buy uh, mortgage-backed securities, mortgage servicing rights, and they fund them overnight by repoing, essentially, the, the MBS. Uh, and obviously, that's a very vulnerable, you know, to be frank, it's kind of what Bear Stearns did going into 2008. Right,
0: yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. a risky business. So, you know,
1: one of the real things that I think has been forgotten in that, in that middle of March time was you had a number of mortgage REITs where the decline in interest rates just slammed the value of their MBS and their MSRs, and because of the REIT structure, where you have to pay out you know, 90% of your earnings and dividends, the tax structure of REITs ma- punishes you for building equity in mm-hmm. the structure. So mm-hmm. you, you have to keep paying it out as dividends. So there's almost, in a sense, a tax penalty for not being leveraged, mm-hmm. which, which of course, you know, Congress again intended these to be passive investment vehicles. So you saw a lot of pressure on MBS selling at that yeah. time. Um, because of post-Dodd-Frank changes in the regulatory structure, there are limits to how much the MBS dealers, many of which are treasury dealers, many of the same participants, um, were willing to absorb that. So you had a lot of these REITs that were selling off their MBS. The dealers were buying them, um, but the dealers are starting to hit their balance sheet constraints on how much they were willing to buy given the capital they had. And this was really what fundamentally drove uh, the fed into the picture as well as you know we were getting requests from the fed i, I talk about a conversation Jay Powell and I had where you know could we have fannie and freddie essentially provide you know repo funding to mortgage reits sure uh, which we did again was not very it wasn't widely used partly because uh, i wanted to make sure that the pricing wasn't too overly attractive you know we we made we we really wanted this to be a lender of last resort. Like, you're really only going to go here because you you don't have any other option. Right. Um, And so we set that up. And of course, when the Fed started buying MBS in very large amounts, that relieved much of the dealer balance sheet constraints. And then those dealers were able to buy Mm mortgage-backed securities from the REITs again. And so you brought some stability there. Obviously, there were problems throughout you know i mean the the of course the anomaly uh is you recall was depositories and cuny credit unions were were generally doing fine we saw huge influx so much cash huge influx trillions of dollars of extra deposits (laughs) in the system so that part of the sector was Mm -hmm. doing fine uh there were some concerned elements so for instance many of the non-bank mortgage lenders who have grown, who have come into play. (laughs) There are plenty of concerns uh, there. And uh, I uh, I, I uh, do
0: want to ask you about that and exactly, you know, what the, the FHFA did in response there. But first, you know, in your book, you say, I quote, the Federal Reserve has become the buyer, dealer, and lender of last resort in the mortgage market because policymakers, in response to 2008, hobbled the ability of the rest of the market to effectively respond. So what... You know, explain what exactly yeah. do you mean by that and and how can this be fixed? And, and not only
1: – I mean, it, need, it, right. it, it needs to it be. be fixed. It, it, <laughs> it needs to be fixed. And so mm-hmm. you would think that uh, given the central role of mortgage finance in the 2008 crisis that perhaps Washington would have fixed our mortgage market, you would be solely disappointed and surprised. <laughs> and, and, 2000, and 2020 really was a test of that system where it only survived because essentially of – Considerable liquidity and 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 support and so because of a number of post 2008 changes including Dodd-Frank, but also um, Very aggressive enforcement such as the Fair Claims Act against mortgage lenders Was that you saw a very big shift post 2008 away from depositories? uh, Not only holding mortgages, but more importantly servicing mortgages. Mm -hmm. So pre 2008 you know, even if you were you were were you a credit union or were you a, a commercial bank, generally, if you originated a mortgage, you usually kept the servicing, even if you sold the mortgage right. off.
0: Uh, uh, our it, members always yeah. like to keep the servicing right. And, and I think
1: it's important, you know, when you have a relationship with a financial institution. Uh, I talk a little bit. I won't mention the name of the financial institution now, but you know, I mentioned a problem that I had with my own servicing post two thousand and eight, where. Uh, a financial institution that I had a long-term relationship with sold my servicing, my mortgage servicing off to a non-bank servicer who later failed, you yeah. know, and uh, needless to say, and the, the part of it was most important to me was that non-bank servicer forgot, to, you know, well, maybe I should generously say forgot, forgot to pay my uh, property taxes to yeah. District of Columbia, who's not- That sub- can be a huge issue, though. You can lose your house. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. And so uh, only because I was able to get on top of it and find out- um, you know, to stop it from getting to a point where the there was any threat to have my home foreclosed upon mm-hmm. by the city. But again, it was, you don't get the same level, let's be frank, I mean, you don't get the same level of service. No. Uh, and so, this increase in non bank presence, non depository presence, rather, because again, I'll, I'll put credit unions in, in the depositories as having that stable reputation concern. Uh, and also because you have a whole suite of products that you're working with. There's a simply a certain. A different approach to the consumer mm-hmm. that the depository mm-hmm. takes than than a non bank. One of the really big items here that I, I don't think was as appreciated at the time was you had this huge, you know, forty nine AG, and this is you know, a state attorney general settlement with the largest depository servicers, and of course this is how Kamala Harris came to public attention when she was attorney general uh, for California. And the problem was that you had, even though you had, you were going after, particularly in response to the robo-signing crisis, there were legitimate concerns, there were legitimate problems, but the problem was that the servicing requirements and the settlement only covered large depositories. And what you saw happen was in response to that, many of these large depositories simply said, I'm going to get out of mortgage servicing, Mm -hmm. and they sold record amounts of mortgage servicing to non-banks. Uh, And so you saw this huge transfer to the non-banks, and that really kind of set the stage for uh, the problems in 2020 because you had this growing separation of origination and investment from servicing. Um, and partly, you know, probably the problems with some of the mortgage REITs was because they were heavily invested in mortgage servicing rights. And you, mm-hmm. you, you can. So you also saw capital changes that the financial regulators put in place post Dodd-Frank that really yeah. penalized the holding of mortgage servicing rights. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, reputational concerns. You know, I, I quote, for instance, J.P. Morgan at one point saying that they were getting out of Fannie, Freddie, and FHA servicing because of the reputational hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure they're not the only institution that looked at this and said, you know, my corporate, I care about my corporate reputation. And as right. we know, credit unions care very much about their reputation. And I'm not going to say that some of these non-bank mortgages don't care about their reputation, but there's a little less.
0: It's a different kind of business model.
1: It is a different kind of business model. Yeah. And it's a business model where you can close shop one day and set up tomorrow on a completely different name. Yeah. And I do think, A, this is, should be of a concern as a broader public policy industry question. You know the reputational penalties um, in the non-bank mortgage sector are just so much smaller than they are for credit unions and banks, mm-hmm. um, especially credit unions where these are, you know your customers are your members. Um, so much of the non-bank system, you're just originating, you're selling. You know, you're never really going to see that person again. There's not a lot of reputational business in the same way, and if you you know, get in trouble when you go out of business, you start up under a different name. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of problems there. And going into 2020, so much of the mortgage market, particularly the FHA, Jenny space, completely dominated by by non-banks. And so, you know, it's interesting in that when I walked in the door at FHFA in 2019, one of the first things I said to our senior staff was, convince me that everything we've done since 2008 on servicing – uh, will save us next time around because it very clearly was a weak link. Weak, weak link before mm-hmm. we in uh, January 2020 actually at FHFA proposed stronger servicing, st- stronger liquidity and capital standards as counterparty risk. So it's important right. mm-hmm. important to keep in mind there is no federal regulator for the non bank mortgage lenders, and what we were doing at FHFA really was just trying to control the counterparty risk of Fannie and Freddie. So we weren't we weren't regulators of these institutions. Our objective was how do we protect Fannie and Freddie from counterparty risk, Mm -hmm. which, of course, every appropriate business looks at that. Oddly enough, you know, I spent a lot of February 2020 being told uh, by many of these non-banks that, you know, they had fortress balance sheets and didn't need to raise liquidity and capital and they'd all be fine. So you imagine my surprise that a month later, come March, month, yeah. come March twenty twenty, they're like, "Oh <laughs> my god!" Yes, yeah, su- su- suddenly they're all at We're risk in the, dire need. Yeah, exactly. Of assistance. They're, yeah, the 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 speed with which their story changed, I, <laughs> I almost got whiplash. You know, so it was. Um, so all that said, you know, one of the interesting you know parts of the book to me was because there was a tremendous amount of job loss, a tremendous amount of. Uh, forbearance provided, and again, I want to emphasize that the contracts that Fannie and Freddie signed for servicing are very explicit that you know you're expected to, you know, advance payments to the investors under certain servicing arrangements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly could say for certain other servicing arrangements, a lot of small credit unions, for instance, will use the cash window. If you use the cash window, you're not on the hook. So many yeah. uh many many originators when they would sell the when they would even retain the servicing they could choose a contractual arrangement with Fannie and Freddie where they were not liable to advance payments uh, in interest to investors, right. even in a stressed environment.
0: I do recall that at that time, you know, some of our members who you know do the MBS swap yep. were very concerned about, you know, the requirement to to remit, you know, the yep. principal and interest on the scheduled scheduled or what is it, the, <laughs> the actual <actual's> scheduled. Actual. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there is a, there's you know, a so.
1: conversation in the book about, you know, walking mm-hmm. you through the um, you know, why the, the differences in these and why they matter. And there was a very legitimate concern, particularly, as I mentioned earlier, where we were going to take borrowers at their word. Now, we, um, I mean, I guess lucky timing in this in that, uh, you know, I had set up a, we didn't have a standalone research division, at FHFA, when I walked in the door. We had one start uh, at the beginning of January 2020, uh, Lynn Fisher at that time who had come to me from previously worked at MBA and AEI and and had a lot of industry experiences as as well as teaching, um, had really helped us set up a research shop. And so we were doing a lot of empirical work. And so we had a range of options that we were looking at and saying this is what we think the labor market's going to do. And therefore, looking at past crises, what do we think forbearances will get to? Mm -hmm. Um, That said, uh, my research folks at the time should not be held responsible for the fact that I think the third week of March, I was talking to Diane Olick on television, and she's like, "Mark, where's this going to get?" And of course, I'm sure my research staff in the back of their head was like, "Don't, don't give a number. Don't, <laughs> don't to make a forecast." Um, and I, you know, felt comfortable enough to say at that time that I thought that, uh, you know, what we were looking at in the job market that we would probably get around six percent forbearances for Fannie and Freddie by the middle of May, and we got, I think, at six point seven. So it was mm-hmm. actually pretty close but there was a wide range of error with any sort of forecast in that and you may remember there were people at the time saying that forbearance rates would get to 30 40 oh, yes. percent
0: there were no projections that really high no. way
1: what we were seeing internally suggested that worst case scenarios were probably closer to 15 percent mm-hmm. than 30 or 40 but that said there was a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace uh, there was a lot of uncertainty how the process would work even pre COVID, you know, Freddie um, contracts capped servicer liability at four months. And then after that, Freddie would take it over. We were in the process of aligning that for Fannie. So there was a mm-hmm. lot of moving parts where we were trying to get the information out there. Um, but needless to say, there were a number of servicers who were asking to have, you know, the Federal Reserve essentially invoke 13-3 facilities to provide financing. Mm-hmm. Um you we were get,
0: a little skeptical about. We, you know, <laughs> like
1: that. I was skeptical, but certainly uh, also I reminded folks so not my call. You know, I mean, thirteen mm-hmm. three's the Fed, the Treasury had to approve. Now, Treasury at that point was heavily relying on us for information. Now, I believe March twenty twenty, there were three hundred and forty six non bank market servicers that Fannie Freddie did business with. We had income statements we had balance sheets generally those were filed on a quarterly basis so we immediately got on the phone with the largest ones and again that industry is relatively concentrated we probably in the first week immediately talked to the largest 20 to get updates and said you know this is what your last filing mm-hmm. was what's changed yeah, uh, and so, now? yeah exactly so we had a pretty good sense and the other thing we were doing as well was asking people, how much servicing could you take if we needed to transfer it? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we had just in September 2019, September and October, done a very big transferring of what was in Ditech to New Res and and did a very large servicing transfer. There were lots of servicing transfers that were done in 2008, like when Lehman failed, for instance. Mm, Um, So this was something that Fiat and had a fair amount of experience at. And so we knew how to do servicing transfers. But we wanted to have a sense of how much capacity did we have. And obviously, sure. you don't go into it lightly because, as I mentioned myself, when I had my own servicing transferred, uh, it didn't go smoothly. So I've
0: also had a recent experience <laughs> yes. with that service transfer. So you don't, transfer re- and it you, is, you don't uh,
1: really want to transfer service unless you yeah. have to. <laughs> uh, but that said, if you're transferring servicing away from a failing company to a stronger company, that's probably in some sense better than leaving it at the company that may be failing because obviously – Somebody at the risk of uh, failure is probably going to be a little shorter time horizon caring about the quality of servicing and providing you. Mm-hmm. But all that said, um, we were monitoring the balance sheets. We were talking to institutions, including depositories, and asking how much servicing could you take. And essentially what we had done would kind of have a circle. We knew how much capacity we had. Right. Uh, and we would share that information almost on a daily basis with the Fed and Treasury. Um, we constantly were talking to the Federal Reserve, you know, now that she's gone over the White House, you know, Lyle Brainerd was kind of the point, uh, with Randy Quarles to a degree, handles, handling the mortgage issues. I do talk about, you know, in the book that the Federal Reserve had set up a liquidity facility for non-bank mortgage servicers and was just waiting for Treasury to tell them they could turn the key. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to Mnuchin, to his credit was very skeptical, um, you know, he, Probably didn't need me to provide him the data but we were sharing the data with FSOC. we were sharing the data with the other regulators um, there were a handful like you know maybe at most you know every morning throughout the first several months of 20 of the pandemic I would get a troubled servicer watch list and we would go through the, the staff and who do we think we're going to have trouble with uh, to me you know it's probably uh, I think you know perhaps counter to conventional wisdom, but I often say to me, one of the lessons of Lehman Brothers in 2008 is that if you give an institution reason to believe it will be rescued, and of course Lehman looked at Bayer and said, you know, we're probably going to be rescued, that they will drive a hard bargain for assistance. And we know that there were at least three offers to buy Lehman before it failed. And each time they said, well, no, that price is too low because we want to get at least what Bear got. Um, and the reason I raise this is, you know, there were, I don't mention the names, but a little bit of Googling and the information I give you in the book, you could figure out who I'm talking about. There were at least two large servicers. You know, they had private equity parents. They had pulled a lot of, they literally pulled billions of money out of these mm-hmm. companies in 2019. And so, you know, we felt that. It was important for these parents to, if they wanted to keep the value of those companies, which was essentially the servicing rights, that perhaps they should put the money back in before they asked the taxpayer to put the money back in. And we had had that relayed to them via Fannie and Freddie. And I think, you know, once it got further into April and it was clear that, or rather increasingly unlikely that a facility would be set up, these companies put money back in. You know, they were their investments. They took money out. They took back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that's how capitalism is supposed to work. Right. You take the yeah. upside, surprise, you take surprise. the downside. You had
0: it, and you were able to take care of it on your own.
1: Exactly. Now, I suspect some of it was, you know, as I say, they, they probably said among themselves, you know, Calabria is just crazy enough to transfer our servicing. If we don't, <laughs> if we don't put it back in, so you know, I think you have to have a credible credibility that you will say, listen, you know, I have an option here, which is right. to transfer your servicing to someone else. I will do it. And if you want to put money back in institutions that you've taken money out, that's the appropriate response.
0: You drove a hard bargain, and it seems like it it, yeah, it played out. It, yeah, it did, just and of course, how you, know, you thought it would.
1: You know, I, one of the fun parts of writing the book was going back and re-reading some of the press accounts for that time, where you know mm-hmm. people like the Financial Times and others were calling for me to be fired because I wouldn't bail out. <laughs> we wouldn't bail out the servicers, <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, I think you have to take um, a tough approach. You know, I do think that some of this benefited from issue, issue, you know Secretary Mnuchin had run One West. He had a history in the mortgage industry. You know, I clearly have been, you know, following the sector for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So you had people at the table who felt that they were fairly uh, literate with the function of the mortgage market. Right. And I think had fairly strong opinions. And, you know, Secretary Mnuchin generally was – you know, a market guy, let the chips fall where they may. I think some of the other sectors, you know, I remember, you um, know, so I should say that Secretary Mnuchin was coming into the Treasury Building almost every day throughout the pandemic. So I would go there and meet with him. And I remember one day, as so I'm walking out of his office, Doug Parker from American Airlines is walking in. And I think some of the assistance provided to airlines and other sectors were just – is much because Washington doesn't understand those sectors pretty well. Like, to me, it's probably shocking in retrospect that...
0: It's not surprising.
1: Yeah, you know, To the best that I could tell, the Department of Transportation really wasn't at the table for the airline airline assistance. It was really run, run through Treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, not that... D, I mean, DOT tends to have a fairly pro-airline point of view, so not that they would have pushed back, but you, you didn't even have that. I mean, in some sense, it's... Um, it's shocking in COVID how much of it was driven by Minuchin and the Treasury Department writ large, and that should be a broader public policy question of how much, you know, how much of these decisions, even the PPP that was, you know, arguably right. run by SBA.
0: It was it through was, Treasury. It was through Treasury.
1: Yeah. So I mean, they really had a very outsized hand. Um, I personally think that, uh, you know, why I may have had some disagreements with that talk about in the book with Secretary Mnuchin, I think he's underrated as a Treasury Secretary. I think he did a great job. In a very
0: difficult uh, yeah. time. I mean, you know, in, in some respects, it's it's kind of nice to have that sort of centralization where the Treasury was, you know, leading a lot of what yep. was going on, because otherwise you can imagine, you know, countless government agencies trying to set up programs and run everything on their own, and it yeah. would lead to chaos, really. And
1: he was viewed, you know, despite, you know, during his confirmation process taking some some hits for his one West, you know, everybody's going to, as we talked about, there are always going to be people who kind of gin up anger at financial institutions, but Mm -hmm. Mnuchin was viewed credibly on the Hill. He was the primary negotiator on the CARES Act for the administration. And, you know, we provided, even though we were independent, you know, we provided assistance and and worked with Congress, you know, on the forbearance uh, provisions, which largely mirrored what we were already doing. So as a, a, I think a a good indicator that we were on the wrong, on the right Mm track. But Mnuchin really was the negotiator and driver of much of the the cares act and people viewed him rightly as speaking, uh, for the administration. Also say this as an aside, I, I don't think there was anybody who had quite the knack of knowing, uh, when to be around the oval office and when not to be. around the oval <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he had a good radar. He had a good radar for that. Um, you figured it out, you know, mm-hmm. and again, there are some issues I talk about resolve and resolve in the GSEs where, you know, Mnuchin and I had agreements and then other areas where we probably had disagreements. But again, I would say, sure. I, I think he's, uh, Greatly underappreciated in the role he played.
0: Yeah, well, you talk about you know the the growing footprint of non bank mortgage servicers um, and you know their expanding market share and Fannie and Freddie um, between 2010 and, and 2020. And you know do non bank mortgage lenders and servicers pose risk to consumers and to the stability yeah. of, of the housing market? And and should they be regulated? To a well, greater mean, degree, you know, on the federal level, what what does that look like?
1: So, I mean, the so the first part of, the, of this question is absolutely they've taken over this 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 market in a very big way. I think the tough question is that for me, so much of the regulatory structure has pushed depositories out, and I I'm, I regret we didn't make progress where we really wanted to do on this front, but. In late 2019, we had created an interagency working group where we were working with the SEC, with the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on on mortgage finance reform because there was only so much I could do because how the regulatory treatment for depositories really affected this. So I I think maybe to kind of in some way answer the second part of your question. Rather than subject non-banks to the same sort of regulatory structure we have for depositories, I would rather have us fix the regulatory structure we have for depositories. <laughs> but, you know, Washington being what it is, the easier may just be, you know, subjecting non-banks to the same playing field. I would... You we know,
0: would certainly prefer that. Yeah, the the, that, the, right. the, the and, former rather than the latter, but... Yeah, you, you know, you've got, you know, the... CFPB that is in charge of yep. you know um, enforcing compliance with consumer financial protection laws in the mortgage space, TILA, RESPA, um, all of that, and so I mean there there is I'm I'm not saying there's no regulation and, and supervision. There's, a whole, <laughs> reg- right? there's but, a whole lot of regulation, but there's not the same extent of um, you know evaluation and examination of safety and soundness. Correct. So and when you get into a crisis, yeah. it's that that's why there were so many concerns really.
1: And it is a legitimate concern, because if you have a large number of servicers, fail. I mean, first of all, I mean, Fannie and Freddie do have backup procedures, but these backup procedures often require uh, the mortgages to come onto their balance sheets. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, you know, when I walked into FHFA in 2019, Fannie and Freddie were leveraged 1,000 to 1. We went into COVID probably about 150 to 1, Uh, and, you know, it wasn't popular at the time, but because we started charging some fees to offset it, we kept Fannie and Freddie from failing, and because we had built capital. Um, so to keep in mind, Fannie and Freddie combined had about six billion in capital when I walked in the door in April 2019. Their COVID losses were in the neighborhood of five to six billion. Yeah, so, that's nothing. So again, you know, you know, part of the problem is that you have so many weak links elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if, if Fannie and Freddie were in better shape. So for instance, I mentioned there were a lot of calls in, in 2020 to have Fannie and Freddie essentially rescue the non-banks. And, and my reaction was, well, A, the non-banks aren't my regulatory responsibility, but what is my regulatory responsibility is Fannie and Freddie and they may need to rescuing themselves. So, <laughs> so again, part of this is that you, you, we haven't fixed Fannie and Freddie. Which is, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their ability to be a source of strength for others is severely limited. Um, the non-banks, I mean, they don't have the same sort of reputational concerns as you've mentioned, even though they are subject to some of the same consumer protection concerns. Of course, they feel them a little less because not only do you have CFPB, but you have your primary regulator regulating for those as well, which the non-banks do not have. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and despite what I think are some very sincere efforts by some of the state regulators, you don't have the same sort of... It's not. It's not, it's it's, not comparable. Uh, and again, you know, my hope would be that we find a way to fix this to bring depositories, particularly credit unions, who, who really, it's not just um, a one-off transaction with your consumer. Uh, e- even if you did subject them to the same regulatory playing field, there's always going to be the differences that you as a credit union this is your member, that mortgage transaction is one facet of a broader relationship you have with that individual. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to blow it up because this one thing. Uh, And, you know, the fact is, is that lack of diversification, almost all of these non-bank mortgage lenders, all they do is mortgage lending. You know, whereas... You may have a car loan with the person. You may have a credit card loan with the person. You yeah. have a much broader a suite of products, exactly, and, and you have a broader perspective on that person as a borrower, and, and and so you care in the in a different way. And again, I think there are a lot of good people in the non-bank mortgage space. I, I really appreciate a lot of people in the industry who stood up. You know, and again, so it's not about one specific individual. But you know, one of the things I reflect on in the book. Uh, While, of course, you know, even at like a Bear Stearns or a Lehman, it's not like the, you know, everybody there was at fault. You know, this is their failures at the top. So I put that out there to say it's absolutely shocking how many countrywide people are still everywhere in the non pay market space. (laughs) There seems to have been like zero reputational penalty played to anybody's career because of that one. Um, And again, not everybody was at fault there. But the fact and I, I just say this is that the fact that there's no real reputational penalty to anybody's career with a mm-hmm. with small number of exceptions, you know, and we saw that. And one of the things we were trying to change at Fannie and Freddie was trying to have a culture of responsibility. So the view at Fannie and Freddie really was, oh, well, the CFPB exists to protect consumers. That's not our job. And that, I mean, I'm a little harsh, but I'll certainly say as an aside, um, when I was writing the book, my editor at one point said, you know, there are times where you're really complimentary to Fannie and Freddie, and then there are times where you're pretty critical. And I said, it's complex.
0: It goes both ways. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's a,
1: and, and again, so the book is not really a cheerlead for, for mm-hmm. anybody really, mm-hmm. except for, of course, credit unions. But, <laughs> and, but in all seriousness, you know, I, I try to give, I think, a relatively even, Key Fannie, Freddie, the, mm-hmm. the, the mortgage industry, um, you know, many of the players involved and the regulators. And everybody deserves some degree of praise and everybody deserves some degree of like, well, this is where things could have gotten better. And one of the things we really did try to change at Fannie and Freddie was the corporate culture mm-hmm. uh, and to get them. So for instance, one of the things I found frustrating was that you could be an account exec at Fannie Mae and have a non-bank mortgage lender as your client, and you could leave the next day and work for that mortgage lender. Now, that really raised questions to me about, mm-hmm. you know, what's your incentive here? So, you know, and wh- how are we making it that Fannie and Freddie thought about the borrower as the ultimate? And again, the culture at those companies really was to see the lender as the client and not concerned about the borrower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, unfortunately, they were both companies where many of the line employees did not feel like they had the culture to raise their hand when they saw problems. So right. I talk a, about a little bit of that in the that's book. That's not a good place to It's not, court. but you know, to their credit, I mean, Sarah Matthews who's still chair at Freddie and Sheila Bear who was chair at Fannie for a while really embraced the corporate culture change and did a lot of survey work internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, these are just too important of institutions not to have good, strong corporate cultures.
0: Absolutely. All right. So a couple of questions. Uh, to round things out here. Now, I, you mentioned this before, you know, reforming Fannie and Freddie and um, path out of conservatorship um, for the GSEs. Does that path seem less clear now? And, and you know, where do we go from here? How might the GSEs fare in the next crisis, which will inevitably come?
1: It's a come. great question. So, I mean, I think the path in many ways is clearer, but on some margins, perhaps timing less clear. Right. So what I mean by clearer is... Um, you know, nobody, you know, the kind of like Corker Warner, you know, blow them up and take a blank slate and start, We're nobody, not that. nobody that that's off happen, the table. Right. There, there's not going to be any Fannie Freddie go away. You know, we all, it's easy to forget that, you know, even President Obama was like Fannie and Freddie needed to go away. And, you know, and mm. so that talk is all gone. The question really is what do Fannie and Freddie look like? And, you know, will they get out of conservatorship? I think we have, I mean, first of all, I should really emphasize as somebody who worked on the statute that created FHFA, the assumption is you fix them and you get them out. So this kind of endless conservatorship is not at all what the law intended. And I think that Definitely we not. were able to kind of change the conversation back to how are we fixing them to get them out? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the current administration doesn't have a lot of interest in getting them out, but I, but but they're So they're trying to do the dance of recognizing that they probably have some legal responsibility to, to fix them and move them along. Um, I think, unfortunately, that where we may be in the housing cycle, that the next couple of years, they are likely to go from pretty profitable to unprofitable. I, I, oddly enough, um, or coincidentally, one of the silver linings of COVID was it really allowed us to reprice a lot of the Fannie and Freddie book. So... Pre-COVID, you still had a lot of surprisingly large number of like pre-2008 loans. And these loans were paying G-fees of, you know, 10, 15 basis points. We, you know, so everybody obviously wanted to take advantage of those mm-hmm. record interest rates. So you think about it. Sure, the rates went down, but that doesn't really count for what Fannie and Freddie get. That, that flows to the investor. So we had a very large portion of the book where we were able to reprice the guarantee fee from something like, 15 basis points, like 55. So Mm -hmm. we really put Fannie and Freddie in a much better cash flow position going forward. So for the loans that do perform and are on their book, they will have a much better cash flow position than they did going to 2008. I hope that's enough to avoid serious problems. But even that said... In all likelihood, if we do see some severe declines in in the housing market, which I think we are likely to, Mm. um, it will stress the GSEs and, of course, will erode some of their capital. Uh, I've got my fingers crossed that it won't necessarily fail them because of what we did in terms of strengthening them. Uh, And that will delay any exit because you do have to raise the capital. You're also at a point where. You know, you'd be at least a decade trying to retain earnings, get them to have sufficient capital. We were, we had set them up, and I think if if things turned out differently, we would have done a public offering of some sort, and I think raised enough equity to get them out. Uh, all of those plans are still, and I, I they're on, they're still on the table. I mean, yeah, they're it there on the shelf. Doesn't seem show. like there's. There's a not, there's not really, really because much I mean, of
0: that.
1: I think the current administration looks at this and it's like you know, not a high priority issue, and 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 obviously. There's a lot of pressure back and forth. I mean, one of the stickler issues is that many of the larger bondholders, I mean, you think the PIMCOs and Black Rocks of the world, they don't want an exit from conservatorship without Congress providing an explicit guarantee because their argument essentially is that the conservatorship hardens the guarantee, makes it you know, more more explicit, less implied, if you will. Um, of course, that's that's not a consideration in the statute. I mean, you're still supposed to fix them and get them out. Whether Congress wants to create a guarantee or not, that's Congress's call. That, that really doesn't – that's not a statutory consideration. But obviously, it's a political consideration. And I do think that the administration looks at this and says, you know, the, a lot of people we're talking to don't want them to exit. And so I don't think you're really going to see them kind of be vocal about, like, that they're not going to really – move them toward an exit, mm-hmm. I think they're just going to, like, not talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, and, and, that's, and, a, that, and, and years
0: know. and years and more, you know, decades go by where but I we think, don't have the sort of uh, release that was envisioned, yeah. like you said, in the statute.
1: I think the thing that has kind of changed is that um, a lot of Republicans look at some of the things the administration has done it, is pretty aggressive and, you know, have some concerns about the way fannie and freddie have been used partly you know kind of as a bit of a cash cow and so i think a lot of money they've repaid their their debt and and so i think a lot of you know republicans look at this and say you you can't trust you know you you can't trust a future democrat administration with them in conservatorship so who knows i mean I, i i think the odds are high that there'll be a republican in the white house again someday uh, and I think that we set a framework up when I was there that somebody coming in day one, because mm-hmm. they won't have to wait. We wait. we had to wait two years because, of, you know, Director Watt was, was holding over until that decision was made. Um, but I think you would see any Republican administration come in and basically take the plan we had off the shelf. And I think within the first term of a Republican administration, barring big macroeconomic or housing market problems. I think they would restart the clock and they would get them out. Sure. Yeah. Um, and Yeah,
0: hopefully they can they can dust off that plan and and figure out how to yeah, how to yeah, move it, forward it's, quickly. It's all
1: there and a lot of money was spent on coming up with some some exit options. Mm-hmm. And let me say from what we had a fairly, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and Fannie and Freddie did a lot of analysis, we did a lot of analysis, Treasury did a lot of analysis. It's all still there and there is basically a plan that one could very easily implement.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So let's talk about the housing market right now. Are we headed toward you know normalization of prices and housing supply? I mean, supply has been really I, I low I and affordability. Nor-
1: normalization is a great word. <laughs> affordability
0: is is a challenge for for a lot of people. No. You know how how long is it going to take for prices to to normalize and, and for the market to, to cool?
1: So, I mean, first of all, let's let's kind of keep in mind that normally the housing market adjusts first quantity, then price. Mm-hmm. And so as we've seen, sales have fallen off the cliff mm-hmm. in terms of home sales. Construction has started to cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously mortgage origination activity started to cool. We are only, in my opinion, very early in the adjustment process for prices. Now, there have been markets like San Francisco or Boise where, you know, you've all but seen a crash in prices. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think in 2023, and again, I'm probably more on the more pessimistic end of the range, but I think this next 12 to 18 months, we will see a pretty strong correction in prices in most markets, partly because of the affordability problems you've mentioned. You simply haven't seen the income growth to match it. You've also seen a huge pullback in investor demand. So, I mean, that there was a huge amount of 2020-21 purchases that were driven either all cash and, you know, it's, I mentioned this in the book, something like a third of people who were making down payments used their COVID relief funds and things like that. So you don't have all of that money flowing into the system. You don't have that record savings that was going on in 2020. So... Big pullback in demand. Yeah.
0: I mean, consumer balance sheets are still pretty strong. Yeah,
1: by and large. Um, and when I think when I talk about that, I th- when I have said that I think there are going to be problems in the mortgage market, it's not the median borrower. The median mortgage right. borrower is in great shape. It's really the five ten percent at, at the margin, mm-hmm. and there is a worry there. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, probably about fifteen to twenty points of FICO inflation during COVID were because of the suspension of reporting. So I, I think FICOs are actually worse than people think they are. Uh, the thing that really kind of concerns me in terms of big change in mortgage quality is the debt to income. One of the things we saw in COVID was the number one predictor of who took Fannie Freddie forbearance was DTI. Mm. And the levels of DTI we see today are much higher than they were in 2008. So, yeah, no, that's it, concerning. It, it is concerning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even FHA, you're allowed up to a 57 DTI. Mm-hmm. Even the typical FHA is like a 45. So you have a lot of borrowers that were they to lose their job. And again, this is the caveat here. It really depends on what happens in the job market. Right. If we start to see a softening job market, if we start to see uh, a lot of job losses, then you're going to have about a 5% sliver in the mortgage market concentrated mostly in FHA, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. That's really going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's where we need to keep our eye. But prices were reset. Um, at this point, I would say what we're likely to experience is more like a 70, early 70s, like 73 to 74 type correction where it's brutal for about six months, a year. But by three years, you're peak to peak again. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way we're really going to get a sort of two thousand eight prolonged because let's keep in mind I mean that was a painful decade I mean you know mm-hmm. really took forever I didn't really feel like we were probably twenty eighteen to the housing market really started to feel right again yeah. um, so it really took a decade some of that was the policy responses I mentioned earlier I mean a lot of the mortgage programs in two thousand eight penalized going back to work and you had that very slow uh, labor market growth, you had slow appreciation. So I think the caveat here is what's the policy response? If we allow the market to reset, prices drop, you know, the volumes will come back and people will be able to reset at a level where the prices are much more in line with what they could afford in income. But I think the the reset is inevitable. The mm-hmm. question is do we let it happen quickly? And I'm I'm more on the just pull the bandit off and get over with camp. And But I know that some people are, would rather not take that approach or, or feel like they could kick the can down the road. But, um, again, I, I think we're looking at a 12- to 18-month process of our, uh, realignment in prices. There will be certainly layoffs in the construction real estate cycle. The one probably area that I don't think gets enough talk that that I am concerned about is – While I think in most markets, we're still a shortage in the single family, we're building more apartment buildings today than we have since, like, the 70s. So I think that there's some pockets and markets in the apartment market where you've already started to see weakness in rents. And so that's a segment I'd keep a real eye on that I think there could be some potentially problems on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all hope that the worst of inflation is behind us. But... Uh, you know, and we've. But cert- the
0: Fed is is going to to keep raising yes. rates for a little bit. So what's your prediction for mortgage rates for the year and so going into twenty twenty four? I still
1: think we're gonna have them for the rest of the year, you know, bouncing just above six percent. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I recognize it's on the higher end. Um, but you know we but have.
0: Relatively a, speaking, I mean, you know, we oh, go back yeah, to the 80s. Historically, it's, it's not, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think my
1: I think my first mortgage was nine percent or something. I'm not one of those people old enough to have the 13, 14, 18 percent mortgages. But you know, I, again, at the grand scheme of things, that's not a bad mortgage. But that also means that prices need to reset to that mortgage environment. Exactly. The one. So the first thing we need to accept is we're not getting back to three percent mortgages. No. That that's not going to happen. So even were there to be a normalization. I think over the next couple of years, where are rates to normalize. You're still talking around five, five and a half. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're probably not, we're, we are years away from probably seeing anything, even in the fours, definitely not the threes. Yeah. So again, prices, you're just going to have to adjust to that. We've also seen, you know, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't necessarily agree with these, you know, uh, approaches, but the administration's approach has been to, ease the credit box a bit, which has kept demand stronger than it would be otherwise. There's only so much ammunition in that before you run out. Because, you know, functionally, you know, how high are you going to push LTVs? You know, how high are you going to push DTIs? Yeah. And so we're a limit. And we're, and we're closely getting to that mm-hmm. limit. So I think that has slowed the descent in prices. But I think the administration is getting to the point where they're out of bullets in terms of the credit box. Mm-hmm. And that means eventually the prices will again start to adjust. So I do worry about but again the eyes the thing to keep an eye on is the job market. Probably the most pleasant surprise so far we've seen is that historically when you've seen this kind of fall off in construction and house sales, you've almost always been in a recession by now. Right. And we haven't. You know, and and so uh, I think a I think soft landing is a low probability event, but I don't take it off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's a possibility. You know, we've certainly seen the rest of the economy be more resilient. Um, but again, the Fed is committed to this. I mean, my own view is I, I think they should have started taking away the punch bowl, you know, the later second half of 2020. I think by June, July of 2020, it was very clear that we were in a fairly strong job recovery I think they waited too long, but mm. we are where we are, and uh, Chairman Powell seems very committed to you know not being the Arthur Burns of his generation, and I, and I think he is going to like bring this out, whether it's painful or not. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, granted, uh, the rest of the board is fairly dovish, as is much of the, probably about half of the OMC, so FOMC. So he's going to get a lot of pressure to back off, but I don't see him giving in quite yet. So I look like it. Yeah. So I would expect us to continue to see the Fed have um, the foot on the brakes for at least another year. Eventually, I mean, they're, they're, I don't want to quite go as far to say that the Fed is consciously trying to engineer a recession, but they're definitely trying to engineer a reset in the housing market. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get a reset in the housing market without getting a recession.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that does it for this episode. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this discussion on the housing market and um, Mark Calabria's new book, Shelter from the Storm, available March 14th. Go get your copy. It is a riveting read. I really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it to all of our viewers and listeners. And if you enjoy watching or listening to The Cup, please give us a thumbs up, um, like, and subscribe To hear about the latest episode and also please send us your recommendations for future content and discussions that you'd like to hear on the next episode of the cup we would love to hear from you and thank you so much again mark labria what an incredible discussion until next time